So if you've got ants in your in your pots, pots, <laughs> I um, I would recommend just giving it a good drench. Hello, my gardening friends, and welcome to Pot and Cloche Garden Podcasts. I'm Joff Elphick, a gardener, freelance writer, and garden speaker from Gloucestershire in the UK. It's an outside broadcast today, so I've donned my favourite gardening clothes and smoothly segue into thanking my amazing sponsor, Genus Performance Gardenware, who make this podcast possible. Genus are based in the beautiful Cotswold countryside. Their range is designed by keen gardeners who understand how the right sort of clothes can make gardening more comfortable and even more enjoyable. As you all know, gardening is about kneeling and bending, stretching and walking and being outdoors in all weathers and all seasons. The clothes gardeners wear have to work for all activities and in all conditions and this is what Genus Gardenware offers. Have a look at what they've got by visiting genus.gs. My guest today is Harriet Rycroft, a speaker, a writer and a garden consultant. I've headed to the beautiful North Coxwell to Harriet's home where we're going to talk about her book, Pots. Fill your containers with plants, tend to their needs, watch them flourish. And that's a Bloom Gardener's Guide. Harriet, good morning. <laughs> Harriet's just ran off. <laughs> morning. <laughs> morning. <laughs> Harriet, first thing I'd like to say, your publisher's fantastic, incredibly efficient. They're amazing. They are amazing. I actually heard from them. Often, uh, <laughs> often I never hear a thing. So they, they were super. They supplied me with all the information I need. Um, because I haven't got an actual hard copy of your book because it's not out yet. Oh, I have one. Ah, go and grab it. Harriet's nipping off and has left me in her beautiful back garden where there are pots. I don't. There must be hundreds of pots. There you go. She's got the book there. Yeah, there probably about six or seven hundred pots. Six or seven hundred pots. There you go. So that's my little book. That's amazing. Um, I've seen it. It is. Uh, it is on the internet, but not yet available. So pre-orders, I think, at the moment, yeah. isn't it? Um, so uh, we can look forward to reading that on the fourth of October. I think that's coming out now. I love the way the simplicity of it, Harriet, just the just the cover alone, it's got simplicity about it. And there's just four chapters, um, learn, plan, grow and care. Um, let's talk a little bit about the whole subject. So why grow in pots at all? Well, you can see in this yard that actually um, I don't have any access to soil at all, really. Um, no, there's hard surfaces, there's gravel. Yep, it's, it's you know, tatty concrete, tatty gravel. Um, we can't actually see our garden from the house so um i really really need to be able to see plants from the windows and to be able to step out and be amongst plants so i mean i happen to have got a lot of pots and i used to garden at witchford pottery um for a long time so i'm used to growing things in pots and uh basically i've made big flower beds out of pots which means I can change it. Um, I only change it twice a year. Um, there are little tweaks that go on during the year, but really I just have a big planting session in the autumn and a big planting session in the spring. But it means I can be enveloped in plants. Yes. The only problem is that we actually usually have to have our car back here, so I have to leave a space for the car. But um, <laughs> apart from that, it's full of plants. Now... It's all in pots, but like any garden, I notice in the book you still point out that you have to have the right plant in the right place. It's even more important in pots because it can be absolutely disastrous if 
you put a sun-loving plant in the shade and it goes all thin and weedy and falls over. Um, or if you put a big, lush uh, plant in boiling hot sun in uh, a pot that's too small for it. So you've got to have the right plant in the right place, but also in the right pot, because that volume is, is, is the reservoir of water and nutrients for your pot, yes. for, for your plant. Um, and once you kind of have an eye for that, uh, and you've got to get to know your plants really well too, then you can succeed with all sorts of things and not just the, the little squat plants that tend to be recommended for patio plants, you know. Yes, yeah. So you sort of touched on it there. Um, you talked about nutrients, but what do you do as far as um, sort of a planting medium is, is concerned? Well, I use a, a peat-free multipurpose compost for absolutely everything. There are some things I might add a bit of grit to, but to be honest, I don't usually bother. I add a little bit of slow-release fertiliser when I plant, and I don't usually do much feeding during the season. I may do a little bit of liquid feed if something's looking tired, and some things are greedy, like dahlias, for example, so um, it helps to feed those a bit. But you don't really find a need. Do you find there's enough, there are enough nutrients within the, the compost already? Usually for a few weeks, um, but as I say, I like to, I'd like to put some of those pelleted um, slow-release, the slow-release fertiliser in yes. as a plant. Um, I'm not very keen on using artificial fertiliser, partly because huge amount of energy is used to make it, um, but using it is... We'll wait for this helicopter to pass over. <laughs> Sounds as though he's trying to land in the garden. Yeah, well... <laughs> Maybe trying to land in the field next door. They do sometimes. <laughs> He's passed us by. He's off to the races. <laughs> Sorry, where were we? Yes. Um, um, yeah, I'm not massively keen on artificial fertiliser because it uses an awful lot of energy to be in the manufacture. And um, it, it can be quite polluting if you use a lot of liquid fertiliser as well. And I'm just not keen on overusing resources generally. So I'm a mean feeder. I don't feed... And I don't really want my plants to become huge and floppy and um they then become more susceptible to what pests yeah, and diseases yeah aphids you name it you know um ooh, this year we've got red spider mite which i haven't had outdoors before so that's been interesting that was the heat i suppose yes yeah it all got i mean it was extraordinarily hot um in but uh, it would have been even hotter without all the plants um did, did it did it work its way through all your pots or was it isolated or were there certain plants that were affected by the spider mite? Certain plants, the dahlias got it, um, but I've just been, I've been trying to keep those damp um, and uh, I've been taking off the worst affected leaves as well. And that seems to reduce the population enough to keep them going. And now the weather's broken a bit, it's, it's cooler and wetter, it doesn't seem to be so much of a problem now. The dahlias were definitely the worst. Salvia's got it a little bit, and you can see that um, Ipomea tricolor over there. Yes. It's all, it's all mottled, and that's got red spider bite. But it doesn't matter. Yeah. I don't yeah. mind. When you were talking about nutrients, you were suggesting that you were talking about sort of, well, effectively, you were talking about runoff, I think. Um, yeah. So that leads us on to drainage. Now, that's something that we've all been taught to do, don't we? We all throw a load of handful of crocs in the bottom, yeah. but it's not something you, you particularly suggest is necessary. No, I'd say it's not necessary. Just don't bother. I, I learned this quite quickly um, when I was filling pots for a, 
uh, for a job. Uh, at first I thought, well, this is just a flaming nuisance because every time you tip a pot out um, to, to change the planting, um, you have all these crocs fall out, there's an almighty mess, the, the roots get ripped, um, so it's hard to sort of, you know, keep the plant going from place to place. And uh, actually, I found by experimenting that doesn't make any difference any perceptible difference to the drainage all I do is put a crock over the hole just to stop in the short term the compost from falling through the hole also it makes it makes something nice and firm to press against when you're trying to get the pot the plant out of the pot um, but a layer of crocks no it, uh, and gardening witch and and indeed the RHS they've both done experiments to test this and various people have found that actually um, water doesn't drain very well from a fine medium to a coarse medium there's a kind of there's a sort of barrier in between they, and, and, and it doesn't move easily through large gaps it moves easily through capillary sized gaps and so it doesn't drain easily through a coarse medium oh and you get a um, like a perched water table but higher up in your pot so effectively you're reducing the size of your pot by having a, a drainage layer yes so you've got less compost available to the roots of your plants um, wetter compost <laughs> and it's wetter closer to more of the roots and and it's, so it's just not helpful it makes a lovely home for slugs yes they really enjoy it um, and it's a hassle and it's just not worth it no that's interesting now another thing that i picked up from you that i'd never thought of is the effect of wind uh, on 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 the drying out of pots yes and uh the wind starts to blow just as you say that which is slightly spooky <laughs> <It does. laughs> uh yeah that's what i dread is a is a is a warm and windy day because that's what whips the moisture out um so really I mean, people talk about terracotta being uh, drying out faster than other pots, and really, it doesn't. Um, it's the size of the plant, it's the amount of foliage in the pot that makes the massive difference, because every piece of foliage is a machine for sucking water up out of the pot and releasing it into the atmosphere, basically. So a pot will, as a rule of thumb, a pot will support approximately up to twice its apparent volume of foliage. <laughs> I'm yes. not being very clear about this, but if you look at a, a pot full of, of plants and just kind of draw an imaginary line around them and then think, well, is that, is that four times as big as the pot? Oh, maybe that's why my plants keep drying out and I have to water them every single day. <laughs> and that's the other thing. I do not water every single day, even all through that heat wave did not water every single day it watered every other day because it was hot and windy if you have to water your pot every single day your plant is probably in the wrong position and it's probably in the wrong pot mm. because it just hasn't got that volume of water to draw on to keep it going for 24 hours uh, and if you have to water every single day you are also washing nutrients out of the soil out of your compost uh, and wasting nutrients and that's going into our water system so 
you've got to get that balance where the plant is not keeling over every five minutes, basically. And that's why I very rarely do hanging baskets, because you do have to water those every single yes. day. Yeah. Now, you touched on terracotta then um, and I see a lot of your pots are terracotta but what other materials do you use have you used and would you recommend or dissuade anybody from using certain materials um, I wouldn't dissuade people from using certain materials I mean you can plant in practically anything that's got a drainage hole in the bottom basically um, but you've got to be aware of the different properties um, so I've got a few metal containers I've got those um, metal dust bins over there um, and I've got some various kind of uh, zinc things old watering cans and so on but metal can really heat up so i wouldn't put it in a position where the sun is likely to hit the side of it you know um early afternoon late afternoon because you can end up with your roots being um just cooked in it um what i did do with those dustbins actually i mean the first the first year I did those dustbins, I just planted them as they were with drainage holes. I drew, drilled drainage holes in the bottom and put them out at the front, which faces west. Uh, and they didn't do particularly well. And the next year, I got some of that um, shiny insulation material that you can kind of stick behind radiators oh, yes, and things yeah. like that, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I put that all around the inside of the dustbin, and that made a massive difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing is, you know... It, thin materials like plastic and um, metal they they heat up a great deal um, when the sun hits them but you can still use them if you put another pot in front and shade yes shade them them back so I've got lots of plastic pots here but they're all in the back row yeah so you can't see them I mean you can't see many of the pots anyway because it's summer and everything's just gone berserk but um yeah, there are, there are plas- there's plastic dustbins, plastic tubs, all sorts of things. Removals crates I've got, you know. Ah, right, that's, that's interesting. Now, another subject that often comes up, and I'm looking around to see if I can see anything, is, is sort of feet, propping pots up, oh. keeping them off the ground. What do you think about that? Don't bother. No, <laughs> it, it's, as I was saying, water runs much more easily through a, a small gap than it does through a large gap. Um so as long as the where your pot meets the ground hasn't got sealed up by algae or mud yes. or something then um it'll drain out fine so you do not need pot feet i don't use them in the winter either i so i quite often raise my pots up on bricks but that's purely to make the pot look bigger and to have it kind of appearing behind other pots and to be able to move more pots in closer together um, but no, oh, pot feet, they just make your pot wobbly. <laughs> they make a lovely home for snails, again, great True. great place for snails to live. Yeah. So if you like snails, put your pots on pot feet, um, but your dog is likely to knock your pot over. <laughs> You've talked about watering. Do you ever resort to sort of automatic irrigation? Uh, I have done. I have got a little set that I can use, but I've only got one tap. So that little area behind the house uh, where the tap is i can set up but the trouble is i do pots in different places each year uh, and i actually find it easier just to water by hand i also think there's an element of by doing it by hand you're attending to each plant individually and you're seeing whether there are any problems whether it needs water yeah. whether it needs less or more um so i think you, the plants get more attention if you're if yeah. you're doing that um and uh, you, nothing 
you know, there, there's no substitute for observing your plants. Even if you've got a watering system, you may find that, you know, you've got too many drippers in one pot and your plants are getting too wet. Or there are dry spots. So you've got to go and have a look. You've still got to go and have a look. You've still got to poke your finger into the compost and get your fin finger dirty. You know, you've still got to observe. And, and, I mean, that's the fun of growing stuff in pots, is you have to observe it closely and you get really absorbed in it. Um, and you stop worrying about, you know, politics and all the other rubbish that's <laughs> floating about at the moment. Yeah. Um, so, and... and uh, the other thing I do, I do, which I do want to emphasise, is uh, grouping pots together. I mean, I, I take it to ex excess here because I wanted to make flower beds and I like the way it looks. So you don't really need to group the plants as tightly as I have. But even just making a little cluster of three or five pots together, you'll find that they dry out much less quickly. Um, and they shade each other a little bit, they shelter each other a little bit from the wind. Um, even in the winter, uh, I find it, you know, there's not so much freeze and thaw in a group as there is by a pot, in a pot standing course, by itself. Yes, yeah, yeah, they're huddling, like penguins huddling yeah, together. Exactly, yes. you know, they're, so they're saving each other from the, from the freezing winds. Um, and, you know, when the snow falls, you can see that there's kind of less snow piled in the centre of the group than there is around the edge so and vis visually i find groupings are always far more attractive so often i've seen people where they've got 20 pots and they spread them all out in yeah. 20 different locations and it just looks like a sort of a current cake doesn't it you've got little yeah. specks dotted around or, or a sad little row of soldiers you yes. know all, all ailing slightly yeah um yeah group them together and and just enjoy the different colors and textures together you mentioned sticking your finger in the compost just then, um, which sort of leads us on to aftercare in a way. Um, and in, in, in your book, you sort of mentioned um, deadheading, which, which is very important, and, and primpering, you know, primpering, just paying attention to each plant. So how do you go about that and how often do you do it? Oh, a bit of titivating. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's I'm not going to be able to say this, a bit of titivating mm. is meditative. <laughs> well how many titives <laughs> were there in there? Um, but it is, you know, and... Also, um, it kind of, you get to know the plants really intimately if you're deadheading regularly. I make sure I go through all of the plants once a week, uh, at least. I mean, and if I see, you know, a deadhead or a broken bit or something, then I tend to nip it off as I go. Mm. Um, but make sure you go through all your plants at least once a week, and that really keeps them going. I mean, at Witchford and here, um, people say, well, you know, all my pots are over, you know, I'm thinking about putting my spring bulbs in. But you can see everything is still in full flood here. Absolutely, yes, yeah. Because I've deadheaded it all the way through, and that is almost as important as the watering. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Let's talk about the, the big three. Vine weevils, slugs and, <laughs> slugs and snails, um, ants even sometimes you know well, yeah, maybe really ants aren't one of the big three but uh, you know what I mean uh, do you suffer from any or all of what I've just mentioned uh, let's let's take them in reverse order if I can remember yes. well, the ants we're on sandy soil so we have a massive ant population but not so much in the pots and I think they really only colonize a pot if the pot is undisturbed and too dry okay so if you've got ants in your in your <laughs> Pots. Pots. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, 
Uh, I would recommend just giving it a good drench of water and that normally inspires them to move house. Yeah. Uh, and if they don't take the hint, then take the, take the plant out of the pot for a while and just leave it for, I don't know, half an hour, an hour in a shady place so it's not kind of roasted. But the ants will move house then. Um, you know, the birds will take some of them as well. Um, but the main thing is not to for them not to move in because you haven't watered your plants. Yes. You know, yeah. or you've let them get too dry on a regular basis. Uh, vine weevils? Vine weevils. Now, um, I don't, touch wood, have a massive problem with vine weevil here. I tend not to grow things that they really love. Um, mostly things in the primula uh genus and um in the saxifrage family as well mm -hmm. so that includes heuchera which they absolutely adore i do sometimes grow things like heuchera and tiarella in the pots but when i buy them i almost always wash as much of the compost off their roots as possible because the vine weevil eggs are likely to come in yeah with that um so i wash as much of the compost off as possible and plant into fresh compost and that normally is okay um the vine weevils will find them eventually and so you've if you love heuchera um then you've just got to keep an eye on them because you can save them when almost all of the roots have gone you can still use the crown as cuttings if you break it up and the the cuttings root really quickly so you don't need to lose these plants but i don't use that horrible imidacloprid stuff because it goes through the entire plant and um it's damaging all the all the rest of our insect life um so what is it the nematode root i know I, I haven't used the nematodes i would if i had a really bad infestation i'm sure but what i tend to do is just keep an eye on the plants and if i've got an infestation then i spread the compost out thinly somewhere where i know i've got a huge population of blackbirds here so, or give it to the chickens. Yes. Um, and and uh, blackbirds and robins absolutely love vine weevil grubs. So just spread it out for them. Yeah. Uh, and they take them very quickly. And slugs and snails, of course, top, top one of the RHS list normally. Um, yeah. How do you cope with those? I tolerate those a lot more now because... Um, You've stopped growing hostas. No, I've got loads of hostas. Oh, there you go. <laughs> um, and you can see I've got, you know, there's, there's the odd hole. Oh yeah, I see them. I see them. Yes, no, I mean they're remar in remarkably good condition no, for this time of year. I've got one. Yeah. That there's one that has been completely eaten, which I've hidden, so you can't yeah. see that. But um, it depends on the variety. If you grow the slightly tougher leaved varieties, then they tend not to eat those so fast. But also, is very important is where you put them. If you put hostas uh, or anything that's prone to being eaten by slugs and snails next to a wall, they're goners mm. because slugs and snails like to abseil. And they'll, you know, anything that it makes a bridge to those leaves. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, I keep my plants very close together. But um, the other thing I try not to do is to have um, plants, for example, things with strappy, smooth, strappy leaves like uh, alliums. Um, I'm trying to think of some other ones. Some of the others, um, eucomis, yeah. things like that. If you put those next to something that is prone to um, slug and snail damage, that's like a motorway highway, for mollusks. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they will go that way. They will choose to go that way. So you've just got to make it difficult for them. Don't put, uh, put your pots in 
slug and snail hotspots right next to ivy covered walls um and you know where there are places for them to hide like dry stone walls and things like that dry stone walls are terrible yeah. for slugs yeah, snails. Yeah. of course we've got plenty in the Cotswolds haven't yeah, we exactly <laughs> but the other thing is i don't really want i don't want to kill them all in fact i don't want to kill any of them anymore um apart from maybe those spanish ones the big oh, yes. the big orange <laughs> slugs but even those actually um the blackbirds and the hedgehogs are learning to eat those so um because they're almost impossible to squash they're just revolting things but basically i tolerate a bit of damage i try to keep them out of slug and snail hotspots. i do not use slug pellets at all and i found that um natural control by um birds hedgehogs etc has really taken care of it it's i stopped using pesticides a few years ago now um i never used them much but i stopped using them completely and the natural world has taken over and there's a balance you know you've got to be able to tolerate a bit of damage but there is a balance yeah you know we're only in september but i'm going to talk about my christmas list so i'm going going to pick six lovely plants that you're going to tell me about and everybody at home can now run off and grab a pencil because (laughs) these things have caught my eye now let me think you've got a wonderful selection of begonias but i'm not going to go there first now this plant i've planted before but i've forgotten the name of follow me oh dear you're going to ask me something i don't know oh that's that's podophyllum spotty dotty spotty dotty that's it i planted a lot around a pond once for somebody yes. yeah well uh, she's quite happy in a in a barrel you can see down here she's in a yes. half barrel um and she's a little bit too happy she's almost filled that barrel and there are a few other kind of quite choice things in there yeah she's nice. sharing it with this amazing begonia yeah but there are other things in there too like uh, there's a uvularia which has gone down now mm. and um there are some quite nice snowdrops in that one as well all oh, right um, so the spotty dotty is a little bit too happy and every now and then I take a chunk of her out um, but yeah fantastic leaves I'm mean, just you know yeah they're sort of crazy they're, some of them are bigger than your hand and they're sort of marbles aren't they yeah and and sort of well the young ones are like sort of um, pentagons aren't they yes and then they turn into this kind of palmate almost star-shaped leaves and they have the weirdest flowers they have these dangly red flowers underneath ah. well you can oh see i see them they're all coming off the flower stem yes yeah, or off the petiole yes and it's kind of well that's going to seed now but yeah they have but they are weird things yeah now this one i often see and i think I must get that and i never do remind yeah. what it is it's a uh, oxalis i think tetraphylla yes uh, iron cross iron cross now it's got fo- it's a, it's it's like a clover with four leaves but it's got a central sort of dark purple um patch in the middle it always catches your eye doesn't it yes and it has quite pretty flowers oh Look, yes yes quite oh, nice, yeah, nice little sort of little peachy colored flowers pendulous flowers on it that, that's lovely um, um now let's head towards your begonias which are over there behind that big yew because some of those are really amazing well, I have lots of plants under the yew tree because, um, well, I wouldn't be able to plant anything in the ground under the yew tree. Yes. Because it's, you know, it's, it's just full of roots and it's too dry. Yeah. But in the summer I have nice pots here and in the winter I overwinter things oh, under I see. here. Yes. So things that are almost hardy. Just gives I them that degree of protection, yes. Tree and it just gives them enough protection. Let's head on through, get wet legs as we go, because you've made a little path through here. Um, now, we've got to talk about this. 
this amazing one here yeah. that's got how would you describe those leaves again they're more than palm sized aren't they yeah deep, um, deeply cut quite brightly colored green veins yeah um and bigger than your hand once they're yeah, mature sorry, when they're mature they're double the size and which one's this i don't know no Oh, I bought it. I bought it from pl- from a plant stall. Yes. And it was labelled Begonia carolinea folia, but I asked Twitter, and um, various Begonia experts popped up as they do yes. on Twitter, and said no, it's not that. But we don't know what it is. But nobody knew what it was. <laughs> ah. So, <laughs> so well, look, as a contrast, beneath it, there's a, what I assume is another begonia with sort of egg-shaped leaves, but they're, they're hairy. Yes. Now that this is a crazy one. Puckered um, and hairy. Masoniana, I think. Let me let me check the label because mm, is there a label? I think it's Masoniana. There's another little one behind you. Is it? This is another problem I have. Another pest I have <laughs> is um, blackbirds. Oh. They have discovered, especially during the dry weather, there's lots of um, life in my pots, and they excavate and they throw the labels out quite <laughs> deliberately. They scatter them about. Oh no, it's not. Yes, Masoniana is a is a pimply one. This is Begonia sizemorii, which is hairy. It is. It's fasc- fascinating with a with a purple a purple back to its puckered leaves. Quite mad, really. Yeah. I mean, look at the hairs on it. Yeah. H- hairy Ooh, stem. This one's flowering too. Look. It's got flowers on the way. Hairy stem. Back of the leaves are hairy, and the fronts. And you can see it's got a few snail bites in it. But yeah. I yeah. I don't care. Now I passed something that. I used to grow years ago, uh, it's over there behind me, the Amicia zygromeris. Oh yes. Now that's a, a lovely plant, I, I actually used to have it in a, in a glass house, that, you know, it would grow all year round, um, but it, it's, it, is it t- semi-tender or semi-hardy, which way do we go? I'd say it's just about hardy. Yes. Um, I mean anything you have in a pot is going to be slightly less hardy in a pot, just because the cold gets to its roots yes. and you know the drainage may be less than perfect. Um, but the Amicia, I, that's one of the plants I tend to stuff under the yew tree in the winter. Um, and it's been fine. It's, it probably would get bigger in the ground or in a, you know, if I looked after it better. But I've got such a ridiculous number of pots that, you know, a lot of them are not ideally looked after, shall we say. Yeah. Now, there's quite a lot of, if we go back around that way, there's a lot of dahlias. Do you find any that perform particularly well um, or, or do most dahlias do okay within pots? There are lots of good dahlias in pots. I would go for the kind of medium-sized ones rather than the little short ones, very short ones, mm. which tend to be a bit not quite vigorous enough. But the honkers are fantastic. Yes. Um, and flower quite sort of um, all the way through the summer. Like this is honker fragile, this white one with the red edge. Yes. Just a sort of slightly pinky edge. Bees absolutely love it because it's like a, it's, you know... It's got that open it's single flower. It's got that dying yes. here sign <laughs> pointing to the, the yellow boss in the middle. Um, honker red is is one that I really have great difficulty killing. Um, so I think I might get more honkers. Oh, I've got honker pink as well. Yeah. There's honker red. Oh, there's red. honker red, yes. I and mean, that's a lovely proper red. Yes. Um, again, bees love it. Now, the other thing I saw, which caught my eye back round here i was going to mention coleus mm-hmm. and we walk past this is that a coleus yes it is it's amazing I'm, I'm i mean it's, to remember which one that it's is. almost like sort of flame colored isn't it it's got oh. reds yellows in it um it's um 
Henna, I think, this one. Yeah. And actually the backs of the leaves are quite sort of purpley and the stems are purple. Yes, purple stems, purple backs of the leaves and these amazingly sort of, um, uh, the edges of the leaves are almost like they've been cut with pinking shears. They're, yeah. they're amazing effect there. I do like coleus. I mean, they do go on right up until the, the frost, don't they? And they, they fill out very well. Um, if you want a foliage plant rather than yeah. rather than flowers. And I'd say foliage is the most important thing for... Um, container gardening because the foliage looks good all season and the flowers are just the icing on the cake so always I, I have a kind of try to have a framework of really good foliage um, in each display and then you know the flowers are a bonus and yes. my yard is quite shady so I don't have vast numbers of flowers every time um, I mean this has been a very sunny year so flowering has been quite good last year it was grey and I was like desperately trying to get things to flower because yes. Andrew was coming and taking photographs for the book. And oh. <laughs> <laughs> now, now behind the colliers, you have a, a canna. It, it's, it's, it's got beautiful sort of dark, almost burgundy leaves. I'm, I'm looking at it and I can see through the leaves, the light shining through. Is, is that another one you grow particularly for the foliage rather than the flowers? Uh, most definitely, yeah. Uh, as I said, my... The yard is not really sunny and hot enough and I'm not organised enough to start my canners off early enough to get many flowers. So I know this one does flower. It's, uh, I think it's called Russian Red or Red Russian. I can never yeah. remember which way around. But it's tall and it's dramatic and I sometimes have to cut bits off it because it's a bit too vigorous and it starts to um, overwhelm other plants. Yes. Um, and it does eventually have orange flowers but it probably won't. Um, because I started it off too late, probably. Now, again, right next to that, you've got this climber that we mentioned, the Ipomia that we mentioned earlier. Um, I know it's got a bit of spider mite on it, but um, do you use climbers in any of the other pots to let them sort of scramble through? Yes, I, I quite like to sort of leave them to do their thing. I have cut bits off this because it's so vigorous, but it does have a, you know, an obelisk underneath it. Oh, yes. But it's gone from the obelisk onto other plants it's going up this eucalyptus and i like that i like the sort of you know i like a bit of um anarchy yes uh one more let's have a look at one more i've spotted over there an abutilon yeah it's got a rather beautiful flower that's veined on the back um it's there's a lot, a lot of flowers on it and uh it's plain plain green leaves but which one's that do you know i don't know no. it's, it's one it's a lovely one and i bought it at a you know, one of these plant fairs, probably about 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And the blackbirds have long since done for the label. Um, but abutilons are great um, because they get tall quite quickly. And uh, they've got these, you know, flowers in a wide range of colours. I've got a lovely deep orange one over there. Mm -hmm. um, and I've got the yellow one, canary bird. Um, they're fantastic things. And they're always recommended for sunny situations and i think really that's talking about uh, permanent planting in a pot they are absolutely fine in the shade and they will still flower well in the shade ah, a lot of them will that's interesting um so i mean this wall faces north um and you know the plants against this will get no sunshine apart from a tiny little dribble of it in the middle of the summer yeah um and you can see that you know the abutilons right in the corner are still flowering Oh yes, yeah. And I've got photographs of um, canary birds sitting here by the kitchen window where it gets absolutely no sun. <laughs> um, 
and actually turning and trying to flower inside the house. <laughs> so it's worth experimenting. Yes. Especially if you do a bit of propagation. Um, so you've got some spare plants. Yeah, got spare yeah. plants. Just try them in different places. So in other words, while, we, while we spoke earlier about right, plas- right plant, right place. Yeah, well, <laughs> pay really strict attention to that. And then remember that rules are meant for breaking. So if you do a bit of propagation, you've got spare plants, it doesn't matter if it dies. Um, and very few plants are irreplaceable anyway. Just try it. Once you've got a bit of confidence, just try different things in different places. And, you know, it's good fun. Yeah. The key is observation, always. Just see whether it's happy or not. Harriet, thanks for your time. Now, the book is out on the 4th of October, not long now. Um, obviously, people will be listening to this. It may well be out. Um, but if people want to find out a little bit more about you, are you on social media? Yes, um, I spend far too much time on Instagram. So uh, if you just look up Harriet Rycroft, uh, I'm on Instagram quite a lot. I'm on Twitter a bit, but I put lots of pictures on Instagram. Yeah, great. So that's the place to find you. Well, thank you very much. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Please take time to visit uh, my sponsor, the amazing Genus Performance Gardenware. They're over at genus.gs. My website, if you want to get in touch, is joffelvic.co.uk. In the meantime, may your secateurs be well honed, your pots things of beauty. And after this hot summer, your lawns once again returning from brown to green. I'll see you next time. <laughs>